podcasts. People who need podcasts are the luckiest people. <laughs> I forget the rest of it, but that's roughly how it goes. Hello and welcome to Flop Shop. I'm your host, Cormac Duff. Hi, I'm Isadora. And today we are reviewing... Funny Girl. Ah, you got it right. Yes, <laughs> but only because it's like one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, also, this movie is, for the record, is not a flop. Um, but we're going to be doing some musicals that are flops, so I figure we might as well start with one of the original and the best. Also, I want to um, do Funny Lady, which is yes, a flop. Yes, exactly. I want to do Funny Lady, which is a sequel, which is actually a flop. Um, so, to give people a little bit of uh, background to this. So, uh, like, musicals have been pretty much out of fashion for the last few decades. Like, there's the odd thing, like, High School Musical or Glee that, like, brings it back in fashion nowadays. But then there's something like Cats that comes out and just completely ruins whatever reputations musicals have. And they go, they get ignored for for another decade. Um, but in the 1960s, they were huge. There's, like, two big categories. There's two big genres. There's Westerns in the early 60s and then musicals in the late 60s. And musicals were, like, the Marvel movie of their era. Like, they were consistently the be- biggest movies of the year. Like, this um, uh, funny girl, which came out in 1968, uh, starring Barbara Streisand and Omar Sharif, was the biggest movie of 1968, which, like, La La Land's made half a billion dollars, but I can never imagine it making more money than, you know, Avengers 6, or whatever the latest Avengers is. Um, but it was huge. Like, why do, you think, why do you think audiences liked musicals more in the 60s compared to now? I think there was more appeal. Like, I mean, there were some very hard-hitting like movies done in the 60s. But I think that when you look at cinematography, we've definitely started preferring darker, edgier movies. Mm. And I think that back in the day, like cinema, you were actually supposed to go there and be like transported into like a new and like wonderful and like bright experience a lot of the time, you know? Yeah, like a lot of these musicals, like Funny Girl, the plot of it is pretty paper thin like we'll be talking about it later on but you can pretty much summarize the entire film in about 20 seconds like even though it's on wikipedia and the entire plot summary is like two paragraphs long um but like nowadays we want we want uh we want stories that are more complex we want darker themes we want like anti-heroes and musicals are like the opposite of that musicals are like oh your life sucks you work in a dead-end job like five days a week you hate your family well forget about that for two and a half hours and enjoy the fun of cinema and pretend you're the main character and like in some, you know, amazing love story that's going to end in tears. Um, so, yeah, it really was like the, the Marvel uh, movies back in the day. So much so that uh, Rex Harrison, who uh, starred in, um, what's the one to make, you know, the one they did with the Pygmalion one they did? My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady. So, yeah. Oh. So he followed up like, uh, just like Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, he followed up a massively successful movie with... Dr. Doolittle, which was a much less successful movie. <laughs> so the parallels are there. Um, and like traditionally musicals, it was basically like white Anglo-Saxon people with white Anglo-Saxon names who were playing the main roles. But in 1968, this all changed with Barbra Streisand. And what was, how was Barbra Streisand different than everyone who came before? She was one of the first um, like openly Jewish mainstream actresses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like there had been Jewish actors and actresses, but they always had to hide their Jewish ancestry and hide their names. Uh, like the Anglo-Saxon names. 
Exactly. I'm going to give you a list of golden uh, and silver age movie names, and I want you to guess who they are. As the first one is Isur Danielovich. Jesus, I'm going to be really bad at all of this, Cormac. <laughs> it's Kirk Douglas. He chose like the most. I love most, that. Like, Fair yeah. play. I know it's you never get it. Um, Dino Crocetti, an Italian name. Dean Martin. So even if you remembered Rat Pack and everyone knows he was like an Italian, who's a friend of Frank Sinatra, your name can't be too Italian. Uh, Margarita Casino. Oh, is that one in Spanish? Yeah, Rita Hayward. And not only did Rita Hayward change her name, she got electrolysis to bring her hairline back so she'd look more Northern European. What a hard time, man. And uh, Natalia Zaccarento. So she became Natalie Wood, who played Maria in West Side Story. So she needed to change her name and appearance to be more white so she could play a Latino character in a big musical of the era. So that was like the world you were living in. You needed to change your name and your appearance if you wanted to be a Hollywood star because there's a very narrow definition of what like Hollywood pretty it was or Hollywood attractive was for men. Yeah. Um, I know that Omar Sharif is like a very um, fantastic and really, really, really famous like Egyptian actor. But hmm. even when I was seeing him in the movie, I was like, Damn, the most famous Egyptian actor of like the time really is like Western, I, like idealized um, beauty standards. Like they found like the guy, like they found a guy from a country. I don't even know how to explain it. Like he just looks exactly like what you would think a romantic lead during that time period yeah. would have. Yeah. You know, he's just exactly. like perfect. Yeah. Like, he has a mustache in, in, the, in the film, and he, he previously played romantic lead in Doctor Zivago, which is why I think they cast him. But, yeah, it was a massive deal for, for him being in it, and for Streisand as well. Like, she was told before that she'd, that Barbara Streisand, that she'd have to change her name from Barbara Streisand because it sounded too Jewish. And what plastic surgery did they want her to have as well? Which is, like, so ridiculous to me, because as we've discussed, I think that Barbara Streisand is actually one of the most beautiful ladies in film. Yeah. Like I that in Funny Girl, I think she is gorgeous. Like I think everything about her is just so wonderful. Hello, gorgeous. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So having like the first kind of openly Jewish actor, this is like I guess the equivalent is like Black Panther, Captain Marvel. Like having you know a more representative, really big budget Hollywood movie. So this is a big deal at the time. Um, so Barbara Streisand, it plays uh, Fanny Bryce in this musical biopic, and I heard about Fanny Bryce the first time from that movie. Um, can you ever forgive me? Oh yeah. I don't want to listen to Carrie. wants to make like, Trudy wants to make a Fanny Bryce um like a uh, book, and she's like Fanny Bryce, and no one's ever heard of her. And I'm like, you should lead with your one from Funny Girl, which people might have actually seen. Um, and it was pretty much perfect casting for Barbara Streisand to play, play Fanny Bryce. I was like looking at the similarities between them, and they are a lot. Where was uh, Fanny Bryce and Barbara Streisand? Where were they both born? I want to say like Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, Streisand was Brook, uh, Brooklyn and Fanny Bryce was Manhattan. Um, so Fanny Bryce was born in the 1890s, uh, child of Hungarian Jews. And um, Barbara Streisand, and she, who, they owned a saloon, which you see in the movie. And Barbara Streisand was born in Brooklyn. And initially she was like, middle class like her dad was a teacher her mom was a secretary but then when she was one year old her mom or her dad died from a seizure and like she immediately like became like much poorer 
And I think this is one of the things that started giving her like an inferiority complex. She felt from the time she could remember everyone else had a dad, but she didn't have a dad, which I think she must have internalized to think like I'm worth less than other people. Well, to be fair, a lot of her humor is self-depreciating, so I could kind of see that. Yeah, I don't know. I'd say it's one of the factors. I think that being like Jewish in a time where being Jewish meant being an outsider. And also she was like very much into singing from a young age, but her mom had also wanted to be a singer at a young age and her mom was super critical of her. Um, and I think um, Barbara Streisand and Fanny Bryce both left school at 16 to become stars and both started off in jobs that were like less than savory. So um, Fanny Bryce started out working in, uh, in burlesque and Barbara Streisand started off um, singing at a gay nightclub when she was 16. Fair play to her. I respect the hustle. Yeah. Also, uh, Barbara Streisand has like the most connections of famous people I've ever met. She was in high school with uh, Neil Diamonds, which okay. must have been amazing. It's like in Ireland, like Hector and Tommy Tiernan were both in the same class in school. Like imagine being in the same year as both, uh, <laughs> both Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamonds. Um, so she became... Um, she was so she was singing at the nightclub, but then like she didn't have a lot of confidence from being on being on stage. But she had this kind of you know fun, funny Brooklyn persona. So like she'd like make jokes in between her songs, and that ended up getting like almost a bigger reaction than her voice herself. Um, and at the time, she met like really famous people going through um, another nightclub, the Bonsoir nightclub, uh, like Billie Holiday and Judy Garland, and she learns uh, from them as well. Um, so she had. Uh, Fanny Bryce had her uh, had her big kind of on-screen uh, startup in a thing called Zigfield Follies, which is shown Zigfield in the Zigfield Follies! I love the Follies! Yeah, what are Zigfield Follies for someone who's never heard of it before? They're like these extremely extravagant theatre productions that mm. basically do like small songs. Like, each song has like a different theme and the stage will change. And they have all these incredibly attractive women and men to like mm. do the songs but they were considered very high class productions and they cost like a lot to go see and a lot to like produce in general they're just very ostentatious beautiful like you to be a zigfield folly was to like be really really attractive yeah yeah exactly so it was like a it was like a very high class variety show like there's bits of like drama comedy theater singing um and she was cast as one of these and um like in the film, it shows really well where she's she's like taught to play play it's uh, Barbara Streisand is like taught to play it straight and you know just like talk about how like beautiful and amazing she is, but she can't and why can't she, Isadora? Because she doesn't think that she's beautiful. Yeah, exactly. She's got this inferiority complex, which is why I think Barbara Streisand was so perfectly cast as Fanny Bryce because they both feel like outsiders. They both like both as Jewish people and as people who like don't consider themselves traditionally attractive, and they're like, well, I can't be beautiful, but I can be funny. And I'd rather fail while being funny than like actually try to succeed on the merits of being pretty and be laughed at. Yeah, because at one point she goes, like, it's better for them to be laughing with me than at me. Yeah. That's exactly. the entire point of her joking. Yeah, and I can totally relate to that. It's um I found it's really good. I feel like this like this casting is like one of these once in a generation castings is just incredible. It's like when, you know, Hugh Jackman is cast as Wolverine or uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Hunger Games, you know, there's like, or Jack Sparrow on Pirates of the Caribbean. There's like some casting that comes around every now and then. You're like, man, like, it's just perfect, perfect match for material. Um, oh, but then the problem arises when lack of self esteem meets toxic masculinity, social standards. Yeah, exactly. 
So, um, yeah, so the film deals mainly with her, um, uh, with her romance. So in the film, it's her, it's her first husband in the, uh, in a, in the real life is actually her second husband, but for narrative reasons, they've got it down. Um, so tell me a little bit about her, her husband played by the, the, uh, very attractive Egyptian Omar Sharif. So the thing is, I don't think he's like a bad man. But I think that he comes from money, he makes his life gambling, Mm. and he always has had this very traditional idea of what, like, marriage and a relationship must look like. And he thinks that he has to be the provider, which puts a lot of stress on him, particularly because he makes his money gambling, which means that it's not like he's always going to win. Mm. He's also very flighty which I think is not a good thing for Fanny because she is constantly feeling like he's just making like all these half-assed time to go see her. How do you mean flighty? Like, remember he went to go see her at the play and then he was like, oh, I'm getting on like a, a boat. Yeah. Like, he just think... always has to leave to go to whatever new gambling expedition he's doing. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it that he... Like he has a life that sounds very glamorous and very exciting, but it doesn't really lend itself to like stability and to long term relationships. Like both because, you know, he's a professional gambler. His gambling fortune is going to be up and down. Some days he's going to have like thousands of dollars, and some days he's going to be completely broke. And like he is gambling involves traveling a lot, uh, because when this is said in like you know nineteen twenties and thirties, there wasn't like you know Las Vegas you could stay at. Like he takes these you know across. Uh, um continental um cruise ships and like gambles people and people there which you know isn't great so like it feels like what she he meets her when she's a burgeoning uh star and she really wants to be part of his life she considers his life so glamorous and so exciting even as her you know career is progressing um but when he's when she's like oh i want to be part of his life like i want to leave this you know career which is really taking off behind like one of the people says, one of her friends says, like, yeah, you know, is this what you want? But is it what he wants? And I have a feeling that it's not what he wants. I have a feeling that he just wants, like, the excitement of having, like, you know, a mad night with her and then, like, not seeing her for months and months and then going off in his true eyes again. Yeah. The problem is that isn't what Fanny wants. But yeah. I think one of the difficulties in the movie is that Fanny, no matter how successful she is, like she is a star, she starts, she makes so much money, she can afford for them to end up living in like a penthouse in um, like Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She's extremely wealthy, extremely famous, like the Beyonce equivalent of her generation. And she doesn't believe that she's that amazing. Like, every single time someone brings up that her husband isn't doing well or that some of these conflicts might be coming from him or that he's in financial debt or he doesn't seem to be happy in the relationship, she's like, oh, but I'm just, like, a silly girl. He He's obviously fine. He's the man. And she's even willing to, like, give up her career for him. Like, at multiple times, she, yeah. like, offers to give up her career. Yeah, I think she's, like, internalized this inferiority complex. And she's like, oh, I was so lucky to be with him. And she has a song of, like, one one of the lines of the song is, like, the, you know, the groom is prettier than the bride, like, on her wedding day. Like, she can't possibly think that she is, one, you know, uh, worthy of all this attention. And Sue, like, worthy to have this this man. And, like, like you said, at every turn, she is trying to help him. She is trying to um, 
like give him a sense of purpose. She's trying to be like submissive and saying like, oh, I'll give up my career. Um, but I think it's really kind of striking. I think it says more about the era where the film was made than uh, than when it's set. Like the film was originally a Broadway show that Streisand starred in 1964. And the film came out, or sorry, the musical came out in 64 and Broadway, the film in 68. And that was like the rise of um, second wave feminism, you know? And the idea that uh, there was just like male fragility and male ego and the idea that if women were you know, self-sufficient in the workplace and that they had their own source of income, then they wouldn't need a man. Then like, then what's a man's point, you know? And like this movie doesn't, this movie doesn't really have an answer for it because it's made in a time where people didn't know what had happened. They're like, I guess that makes men obsolete and makes them feel like they can't be in this relationship. Well, that's, I actually think that in many ways that's the entire point of the movie. It's when a woman who, you know, would do better embracing aspects of second wave feminism because she's independent she's making money like she should be seeing herself as an equal partner to omar sharif's character but instead she's still acting as like a submissive housewife even though she ends up being like their main source of income Hmm. because in her mind she's like i am lucky to be with this man who in every single way is like this representative of all these ideal beauty standards that i thought i was never going to achieve Hmm. and so instead of being a partner to him She's just consistently submissive to him and in many ways indulges all the more negative aspects of what he does. Mm. And she never really like, not that like in a relationship you should be like constantly telling someone off, but you have to be able to be honest and be able to have hard conversations with your partner, which she doesn't do. She just tries to kind of like circumvent everything by helping out, by throwing money at the situation when he's not looking. Yeah. And then we have Omar Sharif's character who really struggles because he thinks that he's supposed to be this highly masculine man and he's supposed to provide. He even has that song like, you are woman, I am man. (laughs) Which nowadays would be ridiculous, but he's actually trapped in this thought pattern that that if he isn't the one providing for her, he has no role in their relationship. And it actually is a thing that causes their relationship to fail because both of them are trapped in exceptionally destructive gender norms and they don't know how to ex- escape it. And they also don't know how to communicate about how they're feeling. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like uh, like about two thirds of the way through the film when you get married, when they get married, it feels like that's the happy ending for them. But like they, they still have the problems they had at the start, uh, start of their relationship. They don't really... Uh, they don't really communicate well. They don't put each other's needs first. Um, and they don't know how to kind of balance a relationship, like both financially and with kind of emotional support. Um, like but, I said, they are stuck in the, they are stuck in the gender roles at the time. But the thing is like, they don't even know. Here's the thing, particularly with Omar Shreve's character. I feel like he doesn't even know how to ask for help. Like he's mm. so stuck in the idea that he must be this like fantastic, strong, supportive man that he doesn't know like what to do otherwise. He doesn't know how to ask Fanny for help. Yeah. And he doesn't want to show any vulnerability because that would be like, you know, he has this machismo image and that would be against that, it would make him seem weak. And when he finally like, for example, the scene after they like they have a gigantic house, he does like an oil scheme, it fails, they lose a gigantic house. Fanny doesn't you know, I think that Fanny handles it in a very kind way. She's like, okay, we've lost a house. That's fine. We're going to, I'll just buy us like a nice apartment. You know what I mean? In Fifth Avenue, like still living our fancy lives. But, you know, that kindness is fantastic. But at some point she probably should have sat down with him and been like, hey, 
Like we probably can't lose the apartment. Should we find a way to make our finances more stable or what can I be doing to help? But then also when he ditches one of her big opening nights, like when he ditches her opening nights because he was striking big at a gambling house, he then goes to go pay all the weights, like all the staff in their house. And it turns out that she's paid all of them already. And he's just like, and they're like, oh yeah, Mrs. Um, I don't remember what his last name is. In the um, uh, Nikki Arnstein. Okay, yeah, because they were like, oh, Mrs. Arnstein already paid us. And he's like, no, Miss Bryce paid you it's yeah. like he's unable to whenever she strikes out on her own or uses her own money he's unable to see that as like part of their unit you know what i mean yeah. he yeah. sees that as her just paying because he isn't able to do it so he sees yeah. her like having all this money as almost as threatening to him yeah exactly like you said they can't see themselves as equal partners in a relationship and if he isn't a financial provider and if he isn't providing the you know, kind of money and stability and everything, then what role does he have? Like, he doesn't even propose to her unless he can win big at the casino, you know, the, or to, to prove that he can, um, uh, that he can support her. Um, but yeah, just, yeah, like, I, I, I feel like it has dated well. Like, obviously, gender norms have, have moved on a lot since, but I think it's a really good snapshot of what gender relations were like in the 1960s. Well, I don't know. I'll just... I'll... I think I have, when the film is set. Yeah, I think I have a I feel so bad for Fanny throughout the film because everyone keeps trying to reach out to her to tell her that she needs to like confront her husband. Even her mm. mother has a conversation with her telling her, you know, he's in a mountain of debt and the only person who can't see it is you, honey. Like everyone knows. And Fanny's so stuck up on the idea that he's her prince charming. He's everything that she couldn't have. Mm. I feel, I feel like the, sometimes when you're that close in a relationship, you can't see the other person's flaws. And she, for whatever reason, won't, like, yeah, she won't sit down and have an honest conversation with him. Like, if she does try to help him, it's always true subterfuge. And when he finds out, he, like, resents that even more. He feels like, you have to go behind my back, you know, to, to bail me out. But it's like, she can't imagine a world where the Prince Charming with the fancy shirts that she loves since the first day he saw her would ever do anything wrong. And I think part of it is because he represents... So I know that he's... I know that Omar Sharif is Egyptian. However, I'm quite certain that we're supposed to assume that Nikki Armstein is, like, white, gentrified, like, American man in the movie. I think yeah, the real Nikki Armstein was. I think they just yeah. cast Omar Sharif because he was in Dr. Zivago, which is, like, the biggest film in the year. It was a hot commodity, let's be real. And also a romance movie. Yeah. It'd be so, like it'd be like casting um, Robert Pattinson in a film. I think that in many ways, like Nicky Armstein, he represents everything that we're we're kind of like led to think that Fanny Bryce wants. Like Fanny mm -hmm. Bryce wants to be traditionally beautiful. She wants to have more like classically westernized features. She wants mm -hmm. to be accepted in society. She wants people to look at her and like be awed and amazed. And everything about that. Nikki has and she's like there is no way that this person who has everything that I've been taught to idealize and everything that in many ways like I'm jealous or insecure of like could be wrong because he isn't just like a man he's the representation of everything she thinks she should be to be traditionally attractive so there's no way he can be bad no way yeah. I think one of the way is that one of the reasons it's so effective is it works as a tragedy because there's such a gap between what she needs and what she wants like what she needs is like a sense of self-esteem and 
you know, self-understanding and to be proud of who she is and to like, you know, see her inner beauty and to respect herself and to follow her own dreams. But then that's what she needs. What she wants is like to feel like she is, you know, a princess in a fairy tale. He's going to marry and some prince and everything's going to end up better because that's what she's taught by society is her only is her only outcome, you know, yeah. and like all of this, like, you know, her beyond, like, like I said, her, she becomes massively successful. She's the Beyonce of her era. Um, but she just sees that as like a means to an end so she can get this guy. And the worst part is, is that, I mean, and this probably emphasizes why it's a tragedy. She hmm. doesn't really she doesn't learn her lesson at the end. No. You know what I mean? Like at, at the very end of the movie, like Nikki got into a fraudulent scheme. He was sent to jail for like 18 months. He tells her, Oh, Hey, I'd really like to get divorced. She's like, no, no, we're not getting divorced. And then the movie is a, the end of the movie is 18 months afterwards. He's just been let out and she's having one of her, she's having one of the nights where she's about to go do a performance. And She's looking at her manager and she's like, hey, just so you know, like Nikki's out today. I don't think I'm going to let my career negatively impact our relationship again. So I think today's going to be my last night. I think I'm going to give up. You know what I mean? Like she's going to give up everything for him because in her mind, she's the stupid one. Like she's the one that's ruined everything. She even says that at multiple times during arguments they have. She's like, well, I'm just stupid. Like I don't know anything because... Mm -hmm she keeps thinking that the thing that's wrong is her because she was taught that the thing that was odd and the thing that like didn't fit in was her. So she assumes that in all their arguments that, oh, I'm just not doing enough for him. So obviously it's my fault that our relationship isn't doing well. Yeah. Yeah. So she internalizes like all the problems with it and can't, yeah. because she sees him as like flawless, she can't see any see any issues with him and I guess it comes from a kind of naivety like he's he's much more worldly like he's got a poker face he's older you know and but she is she uh, uh, like is is like you know a kid who just feels like she's won the lottery by by ever being chosen by him I know that was this that was normal at the time but I really do feel like he is noticeably older than her in the movie I don't know no, if he's yeah I think yeah like she is very young in this like I think she would have been maybe 20 like 27 i think when she was in it like you know like she's pretty young and it was her first film role and she won an oscar for it which is seriously impressive it is but i think that's another dynamic of their relationship like he married someone far younger and with less world experience mm. and i think that that's a very hard relationship to be in particularly when she's going through all these insecurities because of course you're going to think that the more mature worldly older person is right all the time you know there's just a lot of destructive relationship dynamics that they have but i think that the really i really do think that the major thing is that he's trapped in the role of like toxic masculinity where he's not able to see that he could do other things and still be a great partner for her if, and if this film was made today and there's a happy ending and how do you think they'd resolve it? Like, what would the third act be? Because we reached the end of the second act where they can't be together in, in, you know, in the current situation. Like, what would the third act be? What would the resolution be? Well, I think either Nikki would start working at the casino, like Fanny told him to do, and he would have, like, a sense of purpose and a consistent income. Mm. And Fanny could, could still do, um, like, theater. Mm. Or I think that, honestly, Nikki seemed to really care about their kid, like, way more than Fanny did. You know what I mean? Like he was always asking about the kid. He was also always like buying their child like a bunch of gifts and stuff. I kind of can't help but think that Nikki would have been a fantastic like stay-at-home dad slash entertainer, like for the house. Yeah, 
I think in today that could happen in like the 1930s when the film was set or 1960s when it came out like it it couldn't um but yeah that could be a way to work around it I was thinking about this myself I think they they would have to um they would have to find something that works like I think La La Land's kind of similar where you know they have the kind of the imagination sequence at the end where it's like what would have happened if they stayed together and like they wouldn't be they wouldn't each have their career dreams but they'd be like living life together where one of them is kind of put their career forward and one of them is spending more time in family life and they've reached like a balance that works for them and yeah, yeah everyone, that'd be it. everyone I, I don't know okay so La La Land thing I've had a lot of people be like oh, well, obviously, like, the ending of La La Land, it was sad, but it was great that they, like, both achieved their dreams. And I'm like, I am so pro-people achieving their dreams. But I also do think that at times people don't recognize that to have a successful relationship, you inherently have to compromise. And people can both achieve their dreams, but maybe, like, sometimes it'll take a little bit longer. Or sometimes you realize that you have another dream that you like more. Because I had a lot of people tell me, oh, well, you see... um, him spend all his time with children now and he hasn't opened a club like he'd always wanted to and I'm like but what if he had children and realized that his dream that he actually liked his kids more than opening a club like you don't know that that's never explained and he doesn't seem very happy with his club anyway yeah they like seem people, pretty depressed achieving their dreams people's priorities change over time and also even like when you do get your dreams sometimes you can have a sense of uh of um Sometimes you can have a sense of, uh, you know, deflation where it's like, oh, this is what I was aiming for my entire life. Now I've got it. and I don't feel any better. <laughs> like, what do I do yeah. for the next 40 years? Exactly. So, I don't know. I guess basically my difficulty with Fanny's relationship with Nikki is that they both have unmet needs, they're unable to verbalize, and they're both stuck in these very bad like gender roles where neither of them is able to say, like, actually, this isn't working out for me. And Nikki understands their problems. Like, fair play to Nikki. He actually knows things aren't going well. Fanny's just like, la, 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 everything is perfect. I'm a Broadway star, and I have my dream husband, and he loves me, and we have a baby, and we live in a fancy house. This is everything I wanted. Everything is perfect. He is not in millions of dollars of debt. Nope. Nope. <laughs> uh, Grant. Um, so before we finish off, I wanted I was doing some research into Barbara Streisand's life, and as I said, she has the most famous conne- connections of famous people of someone I've ever met. So, like I said, she's in high school Neil, Neil Diamond. She sung in like a nightclub with Billy Holiday um, and uh, with Judy Garland. Um, her dating life is incredible. So I think I've mentioned before about John Peters, her former hairdresser turned film producer who she dated. Um, uh, John, like John Peters was the guy who he made a star as the born based on their relationship. Like he was like, I want the main character when he meets Barbara Streisand's character to say nice ass. Cause that's what I said to Barbara Streisand when I met her. And <laughs> on the set, he was really jealous of Chris Christopherson who was playing the character he's supposed to be. So he got him fights in one set. And he got in so many fights that he was banned from other sets where he was executive producer. Ridiculous. Um, so other people she has dated. Uh, Pierre Trudeau. Are you, and you're thinking, Trudeau, isn't that the name of a former Canadian prime minister? Yes. Uh, two years before Justin Trudeau was born, her, his father went out with Barbara Streisand. And it was They're quite a serious his father. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite a serious relationship for a while. It looked like they might marry. 
She has also gone out with um, Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Andre Agassi, Liam Neeson. Fair, fair, fair. Okay. And she's now married to Josh Brolin's dad. So she's now Thanos' stepmom. Well, look, I think that if anyone deserves, like, amazingness, uh, Barbara Streisand is one of those people. I just love everything about her. I just think that, that she's so fantastic. That is quite a dating life, though. I don't know anyone who's, who's simultaneously gone out with, like, a top tennis player and the Canadian Prime Minister. Fair play to her. Out of all those list names, who would your choice be? If you had to date one of them. Uh, probably the Canadian Prime Minister. Sounds reasonable. Canada's nice. <laughs> I'm thinking like a Schindler's List era, Liam Neeson. Oh, that was pretty, that was, that was his peak. Yeah. Also, if your daughter ever got kidnapped, you'd know who to, who to call. Who to call. <laughs> perfect so anything else you want to say about uh, funny girl before we wrap up the fashion is amazing um yeah. costumes are class definitely not particularly historically accurate but it definitely has a perception of what people in like the night in the late 1960s thought that people in like the 1920s would wear and i thought that the obviously the wardrobe is um first class and they obviously spent like a lot of money on set design it's like a very well-produced movie yeah i think it's a little bit like you know kevin costner robin hood movie where they all have mullets or i'm like sometimes you can tell more about when a movie was made than when it's you know than when it's set like it, it the, the costumes look 1960s ish but they uh they look amazing and there's just a huge amount of money behind it and the sets are gigantic there's like a set that's like the size of an entire new york block it was really amazing. And it's just like a really beautiful cinematic experience. And I like cried when I first saw it. And I've seen it multiple times. I think it's amazing. Perfect. So is it a, this is probably an unnecessary question, but bop or scam? The best bop. It's 10 out of 10 bop. Bop away. Okay. Bop for me as well. And it's on Netflix currently for anyone who's interested. Uh, we will be reviewing its sequel, Funny Lady, which is about her next marriage. Um, and... I guess we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye, everyone.